Well, as we get started this morning, uh, I've entitled my homily, Indivisible from Justice for All. And in this uh, title slide, you get a look at uh, beautiful Zion National Park. I had the joy of going there uh, with my boyfriend recently to celebrate his PhD in church music. And um, also excited to have him here with us today, um, which is a rich, rich gift. Um, and that's really all the mountains have to do. There's nothing really else other than that they're beautiful. And I got to spend time with you there at them. Uh, I want to acknowledge uh, at the top that um, our lectionary text, and thus the theme of my homily, is dealing with themes of justice and judgment and sin. And uh, for all kinds of different reasons, we may have all kinds of different baggage and trauma and pain tied into those words and themes and concepts. And I'm hoping that during this homily, we and beyond it, that we can uh, let some of that breathe and explore that and be free with that, but also just want to acknowledge at any moment if this feels like this is too much or not the space that you need to be in uh, with that. I want you to feel free to take care of yourself and to be able to step out for a moment or for the entire homily, uh, whatever it is that you're sensing uh, that you need. Also, as always, I'm speaking uh, on behalf of myself and sharing kind of what it's looked like for me to wrestle uh, with this text uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, and just sharing that hopefully humbly. And may you take from that whatever it is you need to take and release whatever it is you need to release. Well, this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. It uh, is relatively a late addition to the liturgical calendar. It's technically the last day of the Christian year. So this is the end in the Christian calendar on Christian time because Christian bookstores did so well, we thought we needed Christian time as well. Um, that it's the last end of that. And it came about in 1925, a time uh, after what was supposed to be the Great War, the war to end all wars, and at a time when nationalism was rising all over the globe. And so uh, the church decided it was time to remind Christians all over the globe who were entrenching uh, into their various nationalistic identities uh, that Christ is truly the one who reigns over everyone. So it was meant to be an invitation out of nationalism, out of those kinds of tendencies, and instead to realize this global humanity that we are connected to and to realize that we have greater allegiances uh, than country or violence. And that is, I believe, something that we're invited to investigate in Matthew chapter 25, it starts out verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. We get from the very beginning of this, this scene that Jesus is telling uh, that is a scene of judgment. There is this king who is going to separate the sheep from the goats, and all the nations will be gathered. This would be an image that, especially to people who are Hebrew and, of the, and grounded in the First Testament, 
was not unfamiliar to the many of the prophets speak of God's judgment for the nations. If you've ever done one of those read through the Bible and a year plans and made it fairly far in the Old Testament, also just congratulations on you <laughs> if you did that ever, period. But then especially if you got like to the prophets, I mean, that's like talking post Psalms, like, wow, you're really something, they'll be, I don't know, we'll, we'll get you something from Ranch 99 or something afterwards <laughs> just to congratulate you for making it that far. But um, if you've ever gotten to the prophets, you've seen that there are oftentimes these kind of litanies, these lists of here's God's judgment to this nation and God's judgment to this nation. And there's usually this pronouncement of the injustices that that nation has done, the ways they have turned their back on the poor and the marginalized, the way they have been selfish and greedy. And thus, here's the judgment that God is calling out. And almost universally, what you also see whenever there are these lists of the nations that God is judging, there is also among them, the Hebrew people themselves listed among that. So it's kind of like, I go to Lara and look, okay, here are all of our neighboring countries and you're gonna get it because of this and you're gonna get it because of that and this and that and the other. Oh yeah, and also here as well, we're also not doing our part. We are also complicit in many of these same ways. And here's what this looks like. So this idea of all the nations being gathered together, that, that God was not um, just some local deity, but in some sense was the divine parent of the entire human race and is gathering everybody together would not have been unfamiliar to the readers of Matthew or to the people that Jesus was addressing when he shares this story. And then he is going to separate people one from another. It's probably this idea in this story that has been the part that I've been wrestling with throughout the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm fairly committed to nonviolent theology, uh, a theology that people like Rene Girard, Tony Bartlett, James Allison, Jenna St. David, they have all helped to articulate uh, this theology in ways that I find incredibly um, compelling. And one of the key no-nos, if you will, of this theology uh, is any type of separation that is trying to make a distinction and alienate and isolate, um, that there can be this then scandalization that happens and the scapegoating of people when we do that, um, that is looked at as where our violent impulses get released and how we keep doubling down and re-entrenching and violence. And so when it comes to any kind of judgment scene where it's kind of, you're a sheep, you're a goat, you know, we're kind of picking teams. I feel like there's a part of me that goes back to like elementary dodgeball or something like that of like, am I gonna get picked? Oh no, I'm gonna be the last and that's gonna be bad news. Uh, I'm gonna get hit really early on. I'm gonna be out of this game very quickly. There's just like something like in the back of my like very unevolved part of my brain that just clenches whenever I read this. And so I've been just wrestling with what that means and what would it look like through the lens of a nonviolent theology to consider um, this idea of God as a king, as a judge, as one who has come to bring justice to the nations. When we think of a God as a judge, that idea is not new. In fact, I'd imagine if you grew up in American evangelicalism, uh, you probably had two primary or at least significant images of God that were handed to you. One which had been God as kind of this benevolent grandfather, and the other as God as this kind of exacting judge. And you put the two together, and you get Santa Claus, right? You have, 
right? So like, jolly, I'm here to give gifts, but I'm also making my list and checking it twice. Um, and so these are probably not ideas that are unfamiliar to us. In America, the Supreme Court is the highest level of justice to which one can appeal. Historically and recently, they have ruled in ways that bring justice to the disenfranchised and also in ways that effectively take away the rights from the marginalized or from whole swaths of groups of human beings. Uh, many of us have an image of God that might unconsciously seem to be as capricious or unpredictable as sometimes what it can feel like the next Supreme Court list of rulings might be for us. We might feel like we have come to know God in a way that it's like, thank God for meeting the parking spot. And I also don't know why my friend got that diagnosis and prognosis that looks so bleak and challenging. And we kind of don't know what to expect from this God who we see as the ruler, the judge, the one who is to bring justice for all of us. The justice of Jesus seeks to show that Jesus is a different kind of judge, bringing a different kind of system. Traditional justice systems ask familiar questions that we've been asking ever since there might have been like a conflict in the sandbox or on the playground or about who crossed the line in the back seat when your parents were upset about all the things that were going on back there. Traditional justice system asks questions like who committed a crime? What laws did they break? And really the key thing that we're all geared into is like, what is the punishment, right? Because especially if you were convinced that it was your sibling who crossed the line in the back seat and they weren't the ones that were minding their own business, then you want mom and dad to like come down on them, right? With the wrath of that they can have. Restorative justice system asks different sets of questions. Who has been harmed? What is the nature of that harm? What needs to be done to repair the harm? And who is responsible for this repair? Each of these systems has a focus. In my mind, one seems to be much more on punishment and the other much more on repair. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that though I've been familiar with restorative justice for a while and even participated in a restorative justice circle, I feel like I have been conditioned to primarily see the world through the lens of a traditional justice system. If I feel that any of you or anyone has slighted me, then I am kind of ready to see you get your comeuppance as quickly as possible. This is really nothing new. Our sacred scriptures are full of differing ideas that are in conversation with another about what justice, particularly what God's justice looks like. Since many of us likely recently celebrated Thanksgiving that I imagine whether you were with family or chosen family and friends, uh, might have been a time of some tension, uh, regardless of who you were with or whether you were by yourself around that. So I want us to use our imagination, and you're going to imagine with me that gathered around your Thanksgiving table among your beloved and ornery family were also uh, the authors of Micah, Nahum, and Jonah, these are three books that are part of what is sometimes called the Book of the Twelve or sometimes referred to as the Minor Prophets in the First Testament. And so because your table has somehow been graced with these luminary writers of sacred scripture, it is agreed that each should offer a prayer before the meal. So Micah begins praying the final words of the Book of Micah. Who is a God like you, 
pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession. God does not retain anger forever because God delights in showing steadfast love. God will again have compassion upon us, will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The author of Nathan seems a bit perturbed by what Micah has just prayed, perhaps not liking the lovey-dovey version of God Micah has just addressed. So the author of Nahum decides to course correct by praying the opening words of the book of Nahum. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and prolongs it against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. If the book of Micah portrays God at the very least as compassionate and merciful to the Hebrew people, Nahum at the very least wants to make clear that he believes God has it out for avenging enemy nations, that God is favoring the Hebrew people as opposed to other nations that are gathered around, particularly in the context of the book of Nahum there is the idea of the Nineveh, the Ninevites, and that these were the hated enemy at the time of the Hebrew people. Um, what is astounding to me, uh, if, you were, if you were reading through your Bible and got this far to the book of 12, uh, again, credible, uh, is that in scripture, like these passages are like two verses apart from each other. Like you're, you're finishing the book of Micah and like, yeah, God, compassionate, merciful, justice, slow to anger, and then immediately you start the book of Nahum, uh, if that's what your reading plan called for, and uh, it's avenging, wrath. So these are very, it seems like ideas that are in conversation, but also contesting one another. But at the very least, I can't imagine that whoever was compiling sacred scripture didn't realize when they put these two texts together that there wasn't some tension, right? It, it might be like that person at your Thanksgiving table that knows there's the thing you don't talk about and they just kind of bring it up at Thanksgiving and they're kind of like, oh, ooh, let's gonna see what happens now. Uh, this is kind of the feel that we have, I think, in our sacred scriptures with Micah and Nahum being next door neighbors and Micah ending uh, the book of Micah in this way and Nahum beginning the book of Nahum in that way. But there's still one more luminary at our Thanksgiving table who's going to offer uh, the final prayer. And so Jonah now speaks up uh, and Jonah's prayer seems to have a sense of exasperation and frustration, but it goes something like this. Oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. The book of Jonah seems to weigh in Intention with Nahum, and particularly around the group of people, the Ninevites, the country, the people in Nineveh, wondering what is God's disposition to them. With Nahum clearly coming on the God steamroll them, go for blood. We're going to get all that we can. They're going to get their comeuppance. And Jonah seems to kind of, at least the person of Jonah, 
be right in league with Naomi's like, yeah, that's what I was wanting too. And I tried, tried to do everything I possibly could to avoid going to Nineveh. Because unlike Nahum, even though I wanted the same outcome that Nahum is wanting, I knew that if I would just go to Nineveh, that despite myself, despite it being the last thing I intended, that God is such a God of mercy and compassion and forgiveness that this hated enemy of our people would find God's mercy and would be embraced by God in a way that really roils me. And so now we're supposed to eat Thanksgiving meal, I guess. You know, <laughs> it's been an interesting set of uh, prayers that we've had. Uh, and I would like to imagine that amongst the conversation of the prayers of what God's justice looks like, Jesus, or at least the book of Matthew, and how it is choosing to share stories from the life of Jesus is now weighing in. You may remember that the book of Matthew, in terms of Jesus' discourse, starts with primarily the Sermon on the Mount, figuring Jesus as sort of this new Moses who has gone to this mount to share with us God's way, very much kind of mirroring Moses who comes down with God's covenant for the people to say, this is the way of God. This is how we are to live. These are the kind of people that we are intended to be. And that Jesus starts off this Sermon on the Mount with what we have called the Beatitudes, right? You know, the blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty and pure and hard and peacemakers and persecuted. You know, basically what we would say are blessed are all the loser kind of people in the world. And the people that's like, yeah, we really love that. It would be nice if we lived in a world where you could be that kind of person, but that doesn't really work out for you. You don't get promoted in this world. You're never gonna get anywhere in this world if you live by that. And that's on one end of Jesus' discourse. And when we get to Matthew 25, we're very near the time that Jesus is going to be crucified. This is sort of the end of his discourse. And Jesus is now, if he perhaps shared the law, then I would think perhaps is sort of sharing from a justice judge, prophet, since, well, if that was the law, this is as a prophet, as a judge, what I'm really doing to weigh how you're living out God's ways. And so he says, telling the story, verse six, Actually, sorry, before I get there, that in Exodus chapter 34, all of these passages um, that we've just read from the different prophets are really mirroring Exodus chapter 34, verses 6. And you'll hear that as I read it, uh, where Moses himself says, The Lord passed before me, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. All of that language has been mirrored in each of the three prophets that I previously read from, and they're critiquing it or massaging it in different ways to try to make their own message. But it continues, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so there is this tension here, seemingly, of compassion and forgiveness, as well as a God who is going to ensure that justice is carried out. Uh, I like to see this through a lens when we're in dealing with third and fourth generation. A, third and fourth is less than a thousand generations, so that seems nice. But B, we know, and this text itself was addressed to Moses, but to be addressed to a people to a community, 
um, that this is primarily talking not about personal or individualistic sin, but about the structures that we create together as communities. And I can imagine that God is saying, if, if you've created some system of injustice or inequality that is going beyond outliving even yourself, I'm gonna go even to further generations to root it out. If we are passing on trauma to different generations, I'm gonna go to root out and heal that trauma as well. That God is saying sin is something that might start off seemingly small and in one person, but has this way of spreading and increasing and systematizing in ways that can be incredibly harmful. That's at least the lens I would like to hopefully read it through. But this takes us now to our text, Matthew chapter 25, um, verse 34. So then the king will say to those at his right hand, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus is invoking this language of blessing that he has already invoked in the Sermon on the Mount. And this idea of who are gonna be the people that inherit the kingdom, which we also get in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly to me, Jesus notes that God has been at work preparing this kingdom, this reign of God, this place where we are all in harmony with God's heart for humanity and the cosmos from the very beginning. We are invited to be partners, to be participants, might be language we use here at Vox with this, uh, but we don't have to feel like this is all on our shoulders. This work is something, if it truly began from the foundations of the world that started way before any of us were around and likely will be a work that carries on way after any of us have breathed our last breath here on earth. It continues in verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. These are all conditions of people who are socially, economically, religiously, or culturally on the edge of society. Seemingly, these people lack the familial support, the societal capital, or the economic resources to find support or assistance in any other way. They are truly desperate and forgotten. They are, as I said earlier, would be considered like the losers. They did not know how to play this game of life well. And so they were on the periphery of society, in the margins, and disregarded and shamed. They sound very much like the poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry and thirsty, the peacemakers and the persecuted who Jesus has addressed in the Beatitudes and named them as blessed. These are the types of people whom society scapegoats because they have no power, they have no connections. They're the people that is easy to point out and say, it's that community, it's immigrants, it's the trans community for for a long time in human history, the Hebrew people themselves, wherever they have gone, have been uh, the people that were scapegoated. And so it was always, it's the fault of the Jewish people. And that's why it's important that we are always very diligent to make sure that we are not participating in anti-Semitic behavior or in any kind of policies. But also, it's important to make sure that in the name of course correcting in that way, that we aren't supporting injustice and evil and violence towards a new group of people, particularly in this case, I would be referring to the people in Gaza who are also enduring all kinds of intense violence. We can do both in the sense 
of speaking up strongly against anti-Semitism and grieving deeply with the losses that were happening via terrorists to Israel. And we can also grieve the more than 10 times death toll that has occurred uh, in retaliation with that. And this is seemingly the problem with violence and why I feel so committed to a nonviolent theology because when we use violence to articulate power, when we use violence to find our safety, it always escalates. It's never just tit for tat. It's always increasing in its response. And nonviolent theology would say that if we're at a place in human history technologically where that kind of violent response can easily mean the destruction of the entire globe. That we're at the first time, the imagery of books like the book of Revelation that talk about apocalyptic destruction in humanity, we're actually at a time in human history where we could easily achieve that with just a few finger pushes of buttons uh, and destroy ourselves. So I remain committed to a theology of nonviolence and how we articulate that. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? It's interesting to me here that the people that Jesus is addressing didn't seem to know anything about Jesus, right? That they weren't following the dogma. They weren't part of the Jesus team, or at least they, they weren't conscious that they were. They're like, wait a minute, what? You say, who? Us? We on your squad? Really? First, the first news to me. It's interesting that they did not know that in that kind of way. There was not this kind of like, we're a part of the Jesus fan club. Instead, it was because they had aligned themselves with the poor, with the marginalized, with the scapegoated, with the very people who Jesus' life embodied and his mission found him traveling to the peripheries and margins of society to be next to and with, to try to bring liberation for them. And then he acted upon that. He didn't just say, you need to be here and that's great. Let me show you some charity, but really said, I've come to proclaim freedom and liberty to the poor, to the oppressed, to the captive that it is the people who have found themselves aligned in this way against a society that is addicted to death-dealing violence, to this murderous lie, James Allison calls it. Uh, it is to the people that have aligned themselves with the way of peace, with the way of forgiveness in light of the nonviolent one, even if they wouldn't say they're doing it in his name. These are the people whose lives are embodying the way of Jesus. And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. It is the justice of the one who was wrongly arrested, tried, and executed by the collusion of the political and religiously powerful. It is the justice of this life that speaks out and says, you are in alignment with me. James Allison, in reflecting on the justice of God and what it looks like to judge through a lens of nonviolent theology, says this, God does not want to judge anybody. The coming of the Son into the world has as its end to create a belief in the absolute aliveness of God 
and to empower us this way to act as if death were not, thus being set free from our compulsion to act out in a way governed by the kingdom of death. He goes on to say, such people will not be judged for they have left the world which judges, condemns, and casts out in order to begin to live according to God who neither judges nor condemns nor casts out. Those, however, who do not accept the light, who do not want their complicity in the order of death to stand revealed, preferring the shelter of the old and murderous lie, such are indeed judged, for they have remained entirely within the system which judges, condemns, and cast out. So in this understanding, James Allison is envisioning, yes, you can align yourself in this community of Jesus, which says we want to believe in forgiveness and repair and not punishment. We want to believe in healing and hope and in redemption. We want to break the murderous cycle of violence and reprisal and resentment. And if you don't, then you will be in the society that eventually will judge you because that is the very thing that this society does. It is about punishment and death dealing and destruction. It is its own judgment to remain in it. In the film, Killers of the Flower Moon, based on a true story of our shared American history, the Osage people who we meet were at the time in the early uh, 1920s, the richest people per capita on the planet. That blows my mind. Uh, And without going into spoilers, but it is history, uh, the story shows the predatory actions of systemic violence toward the Osage people by settlers who felt they were entitled to that wealth and the resources that this marginalized people group had found themselves with. In the end, the Osage, while plundered victims of violence, ultimately stand, I would say, in this film and in history as judges against the death-dealing societies of injustice then and now. If you watch this epic film, it's hard to not go there and think not only about the incredible apathy and injustice uh, that happened then, but also to think about the fact that this is the building of our nation, of our country. This is the heritage that we all inherit and are complicit in as well. And though many of the sage come to a violent end in the film, I would say they still stand as judges over the people who did that, uh, both in that time and in ours. You don't watch that film and think, wow, I really wish I could have been on the side of Robert De Niro and really like figured out this way to swindle this people group out of all of their resources so violently. Even though in some ways he wins for a while, uh, we do get the sense that this person who has been marginalized and scapegoated, they are standing as judges over an unjust system. So is the life of Jesus, the way of Jesus, inviting all of us out of this death-dealing world. There are three kinds of challenges to justice that is rooted in a colonized mindset. There's probably many more, but, uh, that I, uh, but that I found. One is that it's hierarchical. It shifts justice away from the entire society and often leads to criminalizing the poor and marginalized by certain powerful people invested with authority to punish. Another that it's impersonal. It overlooks distinctiveness of individuals and groups of people, normalizing one perspective for justice. 
and the social stratification that is inherent with it based on the structures that themselves marginalize these groups of people from empowerment and flourishing. And so as we close our time, uh, I want to invite us on the reign of Christ Sunday, on Christ the King Sunday, to imagine, to envision a different world. And the story right before the story that I shared with you that Jesus tells, uh, he tells another story. You may remember it about the people who are getting talents and this one is given this many talents and they go and make, they double it. And this one is given so many talents and they go and double it. And one person's like, oh, I know you're a hard person. So I'm going to bury it and I'm going to bring it out for you later. Uh, and look, I didn't lose you anything. So we're even, we're square. And it is a lack of imagining. It is, it is that this person has imagined that God is this evil, vindictive person that kept this person from leaning into the abundance that was possible and was its own judgment in that. And I want to suggest that many of us, though we are in various levels of deconstructing and reconstructing our faith, probably you're still haunted uh, by many images of God as this evil, capricious judge. And that perhaps... The exorcism that we need is the very thing that will free us then to be able to imagine God in a new way, to be able to imagine our responses to the world in a new way, to be imagine how we as a community can be rooted here in East Austin, how we can be rooted in Texas in new life-giving ways that reveal the awful injustice of the death-dealing lie that is our society. Will you pray with me? The salvation of God is a practice, an event that occurs among and between us, a choice that is always before the collective us, but the alternatives lure us to, pulling on our insecurities, fanning the flames of fear within us, bloating our egos, the ways of rulers and authorities and dominion wish to make disciples out of us. In our practices of care, in our withholding of resources, and who we defend and protect, and who we neglect, who we recognize as sites of divinity. As we move toward Advent, as we prepare for love to draw near, we are reminded when love comes, when justice manifests, for some it will be salvation, for others their dominion will crumble and they will be left empty by selfishness and greed. Whether material, relational, or spiritual, we all have an abundance of something the world needs. Likewise, we all have needs unmet. We live under systems and norms that dehumanize and isolate, but we have the power to care for each other in the spirit of collective mutuality. May we meet one another with our needs and our material, relational, and spiritual abundance. By the grace of God, we have been set free from the patterns and practices forced upon us. Selfishness and greed do not have a hold on us. Generosity and mutuality are inheritance of our faith. The spirit of Christ sends us with joy and with hope to live into the freedom of love. Amen.